The moment you need human interaction and the value of that human interaction is a critical piece, that's really hard to capture in a digital manner. Okay, you want to be distinctive, but you also want to be distinctive and meaningful. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing as a function has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hey everybody, Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett here again with our marketing podcast. Hey, how are you doing, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen, you? All right, so what's our topic today? Today. You had posted something on Twitter that was quite intriguing, so let's start with that. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I always like some new stuff to start with. So Specialized Bicycles has announced that they're opening a direct-to-consumer channel. Not only that, they're making shifts in how they work with dealers. And rumors in the market is dealers are not too happy, which always happens when they go to direct-to-consumer. I pulled it out because Bicycles is the last place I think that you would want to go to direct-to-consumer, especially high-end bikes these days. But I mean, I wasn't surprised as a lot of people are trying to play with direct-to-consumer, but I'm not sure Specialized has done anything very smart here. Well, you know, my comment when I saw your tweet was that those are a few really brave moves, to put them generously, because those are the things you usually don't mess with. You don't mess with the channel if it's working. You don't mess with the way, you know, your go-to-market if it's working. So clearly, this must be motivated by something. And maybe it is motivated by the success that others have had going direct to consumer. Maybe it's that electric bikes are now creating another category. What's your interpretation? I actually have no idea what's really going on at Specialized. That would be the thing to find out. It seems like a dramatic move. So that makes you think, uh, do they have a problem? I mean, that's one of the things that I thought of is it made me wonder if they've got a problem. But it also made me concerned because I think it's actually for them a really bad move. Yeah. You know, so I think that's that made me concerned for them. I do know that there is a tendency among executives sometimes to get jealous of the money that gets paid to dealers and tendency to say, oh, but if we could keep all that, you know, oh, we give them 30 percent if we could keep all that. And too often, I think we lose track of what we get for that. And I, I think, you know, we can be pretty clear on retail now that a lot of times you're getting really good value for that. So I was doing a little bit of thinking about this after I saw your note and Sometimes it comes down to what it is you want the channel to give you. Are they just managing inventory or are they bringing new customers and are they consulting and adding value in a way that mm -hmm. enhances your offering like that? And then related to that is that what is the consumer loyalty to? Are they loyal to your brand or are they loyal to the channel that they're working with? And depending on how much handholding and how much consulting and how much human interaction customers need, that loyalty can very well be to the local shop that sells you the bike and you're just going to go there regardless. And if they don't carry your bike, they're not buying that bike. Well, and sometimes loyalty to is even to the guy in the shop. And I think bicycles in a lot of recreation products, I think, are like this. By and large, they're a category where people don't buy them very often. When they do buy them, they're expensive. And therefore, it's very hard for people to be comfortable about making a good decision. I mean, these days... A high-end bicycle now is $12,000. Wow. That's a lot of money to be dropping on something that you could hit with a car. So, uh, you know, you want to be sure you're making the right choice with it. You know, my son, Sam, he sells bikes in a bike shop and we were talking about it and it's all about helping people find the right choice for what they need. That said, there are a few customers who are going to be fine just walking up and ordering online with this, but they're going to be the really special 
customers. They're going to be the really knowledgeable, the most thoroughly sophisticated customers. What I worry about for specialized is that the only value they get out of this move is going to be from those customers. Otherwise, they're alienating their distribution channel and their distribution channel is key to that vast, larger array of people. One which we were talking earlier has opened up with e-bikes because e-bikes now make it possible that you don't have to be in quite as good a shape. You don't have to ride quite as often in order to enjoy having a bicycle now. Could you? Right, 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 right. So in a way, the whole market is opening up and specialized move narrows. And that's why I'm concerned. Right, right. So it may very well do the opposite of what they're thinking. And you're right. Electric bikes have expanded the market because they bring in people that who otherwise may not be biking. Also, it raises the average selling price, like you said, because now you could spend gobs of money on a bike that yeah. in the past only enthusiasts would do with like, you know, tippy top componentry, self-assembly sort of a thing. So back down to like the human interaction, I think you're absolutely right. If you don't need human interaction, go forth. E-commerce will do. But the moment you need human interaction and the value of that human interaction is a critical piece, that's really hard to capture in a digital manner. That I think is the crux of it. It is. And we know from retail, we know that we sell more per order through a store than we do online. And that's partly human action helps build the amount of money people will spend. In a bicycle case, accessories are highly profitable. So you'd rather sell more accessories than less. And that's going to happen in the shop. And it's not going to happen online. But also there's just simply the trust and credibility of having somebody there with you. So this is a good segue to topic two, which is mm -hmm. something you and I have talked in the past. It's come up a lot. Lot, and you introduced me to it, and that's differentiation versus distinction. Well, marketers, we all know about differentiation, right? You know, we learned this when we were barely out of the crib. You know, you're still drinking from the bottle. And that's, you know, differentiation goes way back. Byron Sharp, whose book, How Brands Grow, has really kind of turned some marketing upside down, but it's very good, very good book, has introduced the idea that distinction is at least of equal, maybe more importance than differentiation. And of course, the whole marketing world went, oh my God, you're kidding. What? You know, wait, no. And so there's been vast arguments back and forth on it. And I've kind of watched the discussion and I think, you know, to me, I don't believe in anybody ever absolute theories. So my sense is he's absolutely right about distinction. If we take it in the sense as if your Doritos, your bag is distinctive. When, when somebody walks into the chip aisle, they can from 40 or 50 feet away, spot your product on the shelf. That's distinctiveness and that's what you want. Uh, Snickers has had the same wrapper essentially for 60 years, even though they now don't even say Snickers on it, but put funny phrases and things like that. But does anybody have any questions to Snickers bar? No. Why? It's distinctive. So there's a real value for a brand in people being able to say, oh, that's one of theirs or, oh, that's what I need or those kinds of things. I think where it gets fuzzy is differentiation is critical for products. We have to make our products different. Products are always different anyway, because we made them. I do know a good part of what Byron Sharp's saying is that you don't spend a lot of time differentiating your brand. What I would say is, make products that are really meaningful and make your brand really distinct. So my experience in product marketing has been that if your product differentiation is a black and white slam dunk, I have it, you don't, game over, mm -hmm. go forth. Absolutely. But the moment you do that, like within a few months, your competition will start claiming the same thing. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So now it becomes a gray area. It's no longer black and white. And Mm -hmm. now it's like, well, we have it too. Well, how do you have it? Well, we have it this way and we have it that way. So it becomes blurry. When you get to that blurry, that's really when distinctiveness really comes in. And of course, Mm -hmm. my experience is mostly B2B, where even then product differentiation is like supposed to be really important. But even then, distinction plays a big role, especially if you're a startup, especially if you're trying to like establish some kind of a coherent identity. So product differentiation is not versus brand distinction, but it is in parallel with, and I take his advice, his valid advice, as let's not forget about brand distinction, even in a B2B setting. In a B2C setting, without a doubt. If you're buying a pencil, it's a pencil, it's hard to differentiate it. There are things you can do to make it distinctive. I think one of the interesting things, what I teach my classes is, okay, you want to be distinctive, but you also want to be distinctive and meaningful. Yeah. There's a trick because there are ways to be distinctive that don't play to your advantage. So I think that the Tesla cars are distinctive and meaningful. They're beautiful. People love the way they look and they just are deliver everything. I think At this point in time, I would say that the Tesla truck is distinctive, but not meaningful. And it may be that it turns out to be a great product and a great direction for them. But the fundamental reaction to it was that of that's a gimmick. And gimmicks are what are distinctive, but not meaningful. Somebody who goes out and does something just to show off and it's just a gimmick. Yes, yes. And it takes a lot of discipline to avoid gimmicks when you don't have anything else to latch onto and your product launches tomorrow, right? Right. But then that also means that you probably didn't do the right things like, you know, a year ago. Right. Right. And hence being the main problem. I've been reading a lot of Kevin Hillstrom's work on uh, online stores and maintaining them. And probably the most sobering thing is the lead time to affect things in the stores is, you know, you have to think ahead and it's tough. So speaking of having done things a year ago, uh, that leads me to topic number three, and that is the role of marketing. Now, you had a blog about this some time ago, and I had a different blog about it also some time ago, and this was like a few years ago. So let's just start with that because you know that represented a whole bunch of thinking. And we talked about it in our first episode, how the role of the CMO is so hard. Well, okay, so here's what I said, and I this came out of my teaching that when I went back and started teaching marketing, I got really frustrated because the books didn't give students a sense of where does marketing fit in the world. It would walk straight into the four P's, which I'm a firm. I mean, the four P's are really key, but I look at them as the levers. They're the levers we have for making things happen in the market. The question is, what's the role? And I called it the role of marketing. And I said, marketing has three roles. One is to know the market, right? A marketing role is to really thoroughly understand the market. This is consumers. This is competitors. This is trends. This is all kinds of things. You need to know sales channels. You need to know management of those. So marketing has to be this amazing observer and knowledgeable about the market. Then marketing's second role is to bring that back to the company so that everybody gets the benefit of that understanding. It makes your products better, your manufacturing better, your logistics, your finance. You know, everybody in the company needs to learn from that. And then the third role for marketing is that marketing actually has some specific jobs to do, which is to do the advertising, to deal with the sales channel and a number of those things. Unfortunately, a lot of companies tend to emphasize what they can see as obvious work 
like doing the advertising and don't give marketing the funding or the role it needs to know the market. And they miss out that really important primary. And I think that's the single most important thing that we need from marketing. Right. You know, along those lines, we both have said this, is that when we say marketing, we're not talking marketing department. Right. We're talking about marketing as a set of activities that an organization needs to do. And it will do some of it with or without a marketing department. Yeah. And so you can do a lot of great marketing without a marketing department and vice versa. So mm -hmm. my thinking is really pretty aligned. And I, first of all, I start with that marketing as a function has transformed a lot over the past 20 years, yeah. more technology, mm -hmm. more data, more digital, more social, more combination of arts and sciences, not just arts, not just sciences. And right there, that makes it a very difficult task. At the same time, as you mentioned, marketing needs to understand the market. They all need to understand the customer and they need to understand the product. And in mm -hmm. fact, on the industry analyst side of, if you go on our orionx.net website, on the industry analyst side, you will see our framework is that we track these three categories of data. And that means that you need to understand the product, you need to understand the customer, you need to understand customer buying behavior and adoption. You know, if they just installed something, if they just bought something, they're not ready, you know, the readiness. And then the product isn't just a product you got now, but it's also your roadmap and what you sort of espouse and the category that you own. And then the market, like you said, is the competition, the influencers in some areas, especially with supply chain being an issue. It's really more of an understanding of a global scene. And then finally, it's like understanding what all the other functions do within a company. So now marketing needs to understand human resources and finance and manufacturing and engineering and sales. And that makes it really difficult, <laughs> right? I mean, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the thing that companies fight with. And maybe that's why you see marketing jobs advertised that are really just put up social media posts. Well, that's not a marketing job. I mean, it is a job within marketing, but that's not marketing. That's put up social right. media posts. Right. But I think it's, you know, sometimes companies get frustrated with it. It's hard to find people who know how to do these things and bring a balance and an understanding and an ability to kind of comprehend everything and act as a result. But I think the other side of it is that organizations would do well to elevate the role of marketing and the stature of marketing and then budget appropriately, scope it appropriately so that they can go and land the kind of people who really have that kind of capability and breadth and depth, right? So I think it's a combination. It is very difficult to find people who are good at all of it, but many of the places that are looking for that kind of a talent aren't going to find it the way they scope it and manage it. No, it, well, and probably problems they scope it into really specific little things. And the reality is it doesn't fit that well. It's more, what's the problem? Let's find it. Let's go attack it. Let's solve it. And that's right. a whole, you know, that doesn't fit up on a nice job description. Well, the other problem is that if you define it at the level that it needs to be defined, then you want well, how's that different from the CEO's job? And if you have that question, well, then right there, it's either the case that the CEO had better do all that work or right. they better mm -hmm. find a way to really get a CMO that can do the part that they're not going to do. And that leads to why it is so critical for the CMO and the CEO to just be completely aligned, hand in glove. In fact, that alignment to me is more important than the sales marketing alignment, which is also critically important. It's interesting. There's a guy named Tim Bambler that wrote a book back around 2000, 2001 on marketing and metrics. His observation is based on a lot of studies. They found that marketing was defined differently in every company as to who was responsible. And in fact, you do have these companies where the CEO actually has a really good fundamental 
marketing instinct. And it's not wrong for them to play a significant marketing role, you know, at all. The question for the company is really more one of, have you handled marketing well, not do you have a marketing department? Unfortunately, there are a few too many companies out there that say, oh yeah, we've handled marketing well. And you're like, what did you do with it? We gave it to finance. Uh, no. <laughs> That's right. I've seen that. Well, this is why my advice to my CEO friends for the past more than a decade has been that please take marketing as seriously as you take engineering. Marketing has come a long way. And while you might have an intuitive feel for how finance and HR engineering operate, you need to recalibrate your intuitive notion of what it takes to do marketing. It's a significantly more complex task. It takes a significantly different kind of a persona to run it if you really want to outsource it, but you need to scope it and resource it properly. So we're pushing to the end of our window. So let's end on a kind of a fun note that we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, and that's color management in marketing. And that sort of reminded, you know, some of us who kind of are not as young as others remember the old days of print marketing only. There was no digital. <laughs> and you had to go do the, you know, I even forget the lingo anymore when you had to yeah. go to the print shop and look right. at the silver and the, you know, etc. Well, fortunately, we weren't running too many things off on a mimeograph machine, but, you know, those were, uh, <laughs> you know, those are the dark ages there. But uh, yeah, it's just really fascinating as that's changed. So, I mean, this is part of what I like about marketing is here we are talking about these big theoretical concepts about organizing the company. And yet, at some point in time, you have to deal with, okay, is that the right color for the logo? Now, I come out of TV where color just drives us crazy. I used to yeah. have clients that would come in with their Pantone books and they'd say, okay, that's supposed to be Pantone 4074 or something <laughs> You know, and, and we'd be like, it's a television set. And here's the problem. No matter what we do in the edit bay, when it's on broadcast, its color depends on the consumer's setting on their TV set. At the end so of the day, it yeah. will always be different. You know, with every TV set, your logo is going to be different. And so our challenge is finding the right color to set it at to begin with, so that after it makes it through the broadcast system and through their TV set, it somehow feels like you. And they, you know, that doesn't satisfy somebody's like, yeah, but it's Pantone 40, you know, I mean, that's, that doesn't satisfy them. But that's reality in TV. And I think you've got the same pro challenge with, you come out of some print. Uh, well, I mean, in the old days when you did a print, it was offset printing. So it was analog and you would go and set it up once and you would look at multiple iterations until all the colors matched up properly. And you said, go, and then you'd go and print like, you know, thousands of copies and you were good to go. The moment you kind of moved from that sort of high volume analog to digital, and then that took you to late laser printing and then to inkjet printing and then solid ink versus liquid ink. The revelation there to me was that there were colors that the device was simply unable to replicate. That that there was like a, you know, a spider diagram that showed what colors it can in fact print. And if the color you wanted was outside of that, you were never going to get it. <laughs> Not like you could if you fiddle with it. It just wasn't possible. The early days of internet stuff where there was like, okay, you can get these colors easily, but we don't know about those. You know, we can't promise anything. Right. Well, now you take that to digital. So now you add a whole set of other complexities is that what did you do in the edit bay? Okay, mm -hmm. so that's like what you come up with. But now you mm -hmm. have to like transmit it. How do you encode it for transmission? Depending on the bandwidth that you have, how do you compress it? If that compression is real time varied, depending on the bandwidth that you've got, you send something to the other side. Now the other side has to decompress it. They have to interpret it properly. 
and then they put it on the screen, and then the customer can fiddle with the settings and ruin it for you. (laughs) Actually, here's one of the places we saw this most dramatically was in sound as well, because we would go out to our sound guy, who's a brilliant sound guy. Some of his work had been for, you know, short movies that were up for Oscars and stuff like that. He would do all of his mixing, and we'd send it off to the client. The client would put it on their computer, turn their speakers up super loud, and listen to it, and call us up and say, the music's too loud. And we'd say, no, (laughs) let me tell you how this happens, which is when you go through all those compressions that happen with television, when it's going from a server out through the wires and internet or airwaves or whatever, and somehow finally gets to a TV set, the sound gets crushed. When the sound gets crushed, the music gets crushed more than the voice and the voice cuts through. And so then you'd say to the client, okay, well, take your speakers and turn them way down. Now, what do you hear? The voice. Okay, that's what's going to happen in broadcast. But these are subtleties that people don't think about. You can make a video as long as you have an iPhone. Well, you can, but do you really know what's going to happen to it as it goes through all these distribution systems and things like that? Are you going to be happy with what comes out the other end? Well, the other thing actually is like the size of the screen too. Even the size of the screen has a bearing. And then like you said, the compression can be lossless compression. And many times it's not. It's like a net information loss that you're never going to get back. So really my advice to folks who are fastidious about these things is to define a range rather than a precise thing. Because once you're in digital, a lot of stuff becomes probabilistic. And if you're within the zone, then maybe that's good enough. It's true. I've even seen it with actual logo layouts. And I worked with Don Lewis, who had done a lot of uh, national television work for Ford and for Goodyear and Super Bowl ads and things like this. And we had to change a logo once. And our client just went ballistic. He said, look, it doesn't work on TV. You know, you've got a logo that's designed, but it doesn't work on TV. And Don's advice to me was, yeah, guess what? You always change logos for TV because what we can't lose track of is our purpose is to communicate, not to be perfectionists about the logo. And so what you want is for people to walk away from having seen the advertising and say, oh, that's Ford or, oh, you know, this was for a DuPont, you know, it was Teflon. As long as they're clear about that, we've done our job. And the logo police get paid to try to impose an arbitrary precision that isn't important in reality. Yeah. And then you add 3D to it and then you add motion to it. And now you've got other significant things. But at the end, like you're saying, form has to follow function. (laughs) So on that happy note, we can end this episode. As usual, thanks to our listeners to keep us going. And until next episode. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Shane. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.